Hello and welcome everyone to the Spark My Muse podcast. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay, and today my guest is Brian Russell. He is a professor of biblical studies at the Asbury Theological Seminary at the Outpost in Orlando. He has a PhD in biblical studies, and he is the host of the podcast called Deep Dive Spirituality. I was very excited to be a guest on his podcast with my book about spiritual formation called The Wild Land Within, which is episode 71, if you want to check that out. Brian also does transformational coaching for pastors, leaders, and spiritually minded professionals. And he's also an author, which is what we'll be discussing today. His book called Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life, published by Paraclete Press. Welcome, Brian. It's so great to have you here. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Lisa, and it's great to be able to speak with you again. It is great. I have um, really enjoyed your book, and there are some personal aspects to it which I thought were particularly insightful. I appreciate how centering prayer and contemplative practices have really changed your interior world and your outlook and, and how you relate to other people. It's really beautiful to see the fruit of the Spirit coming out in your life through this intimacy with God and and others. I noticed that the acknowledgement section of your book, you speak to your life being turned upside down about 10 years ago, and, and you write that contemplative spiritual practices, and I'm quoting here, restored the vitality of my faith and infused my life with love and deep joy. That is just such a potent, beautiful statement. You mentioned that the ministries of these practices brought a slow rebirth. And I was hoping you could take us back to that time a little bit and what you're going through sort of internally and sort of your entry into this unfamiliar territory of yourself, but of these practices and this way of encountering your faith too. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, the, the, the backdrop for the book, again, I've been a lifelong uh, Christian. Uh, I've been going to a, a church, grew up in Akron, Ohio. And so my parents literally were converted by some of Billy Graham's associate evangelists back in the 70s. And so I've been going to church since I was five and you know, grew up and had a call to ministry as a teenager uh, and went to seminary when I was 22, pastored multiple churches. And then I was a seminary professor at age 31 after I finished my doctoral uh, work. And so at some level, it was uh, just um, the right doors always opened. Um, but the immediate backdrop for this, this book was to me um, the most probably the biggest traumatic experience I've had in my life. I've done a lot enough work to know that there were earlier pieces for this. But back in 2010, uh, literally, I had been married for for 20 years, had uh, two daughters, still do have two daughters, but they were um, you know, like nine and 10 at that point. And then my, um, my former uh, spouse literally decided she didn't want to be married anymore. And so I found myself uh, suddenly single and that flipped everything upside down and was entered into this real period of trauma because here I was a pastor, a seminary professor, you know, what all these other things. And I find myself um, divorced or really going through a divorce. And that um, just seared my insides. Obviously, as a pastor, I'd walk through people that had experienced this, but I wasn't really prepared for the fear, the guilt, the shame, um, and just the, the deep sadness. And I, it, it was almost as though well, in some ways, I actually felt like I lost my faith. At least I'd lost mm -hmm. access 
to that moment by moment sense of being in God's uh, God's presence. And at that point, like, you know, I Bible studies, biblical studies professor, you know, reading the Bible did nothing for me. All my friends, many of whom are pastors, whatever they said, I was like sort of this unconsolable person, just, mm-hmm. um, you know, scared and, uh, uh, and I could kind of go on, but it, 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 the, the, all that sort of changed in a moment when I was on a walk and I felt like the world froze for just like a split second. Mm-hmm. And again, I was, I, mean, I live in Florida. So luckily it was just one of these beautiful spring days where it wasn't too hot, but I literally remember hearing a bird sing. I look up and like the world froze and it felt like everything went from black and white to color. And I had this just powerful experience with God where I sensed that um, God loved me and that God was going to be enough no matter what. And so, you know, and it didn't fix everything right there, but I just had this moment outside of my normal experiences of uh, the means of grace and spiritual practices. And I consider that my kind of my jumping into these contemplative pieces. And so, um, you know, that didn't fix my life right away. I had a lot of growth, but I realized like, okay, um, I'm going to get on the other side of all this. And if I can be brave, um, God probably isn't done with me yet. And I'm probably going to get a chance to grow in ways that I never would have anticipated. So, you know, I literally also just kind of opened myself up at that point. I didn't want to be bitter on the other Mm -hmm. side of going through the divorce. I wanted to be better. Mm -hmm. And I had this mindset prayer that and, and it was so so appropriate for what I ended up doing with journaling and the centering prayer. It was, um, Lord, <clears throat> bring all the darkness on the inside of me into your light so I can be healed by your grace. Um, you know, what I wanted to do was just whatever my responsibility and it was in this broken relationship, I need to make sure it never happens again. And I want God to clean me up. And so uh, all that long story, just I, I started um, journaling and um, kind of dabbling into contemplative practices, which I had no background in. And that's kind of where this book came from. I just yeah. sort of like Forrest Gumped my way into this. Like, if you know, <laughs> just the movie, just the right people came in at the right time. And I was smart enough just to pay attention and take these things in. And so that's kind of that was the painful backdrop to the book. And then, you know, down the road, eight, nine well, I guess it was almost nine years later, I started writing the book as a means of really reflecting in some ways what God had done in my life. And I wanted to start sharing it with people. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I had said to you before I pressed record that you come from a different discipline, not formation itself or the contemplative practices itself, but biblical studies. And to me, it's always really beautiful to see the fruit of that come out in a different a different sort of way. I, I wind up talking to and and speaking among people who are, this is their field of study. And to see you come and find so many treasures from it is always so beautiful. And I also, my background also didn't have any clue about uh, any of these writers in contemplative practices or anything like that. And I too found great healing and space and silence that were so needed and it kind of like a an oasis in the wasteland and yes and so i felt so refreshed too that i dove i dove deep in i'm like okay this is this is everything now <laughs> you know this is going to be yeah. um this is going to be what i do what i study what i read and and people i speak with it would be great if you could tell listeners there's five parts to your book and 
maybe just go over a little bit about the sections in your book to give people a sense of how it's put together? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book as, as, to me, what I wished I would have known about centering prayer and these deep contemplative practices before I got started. And, and, and I had also wrote the book, not intending to write a book. It was, I had a whole bunch of material. So I just sort of organized it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I opened it up with essentially, um, part one is how to practice centering prayer, where I, I talk about obviously the practice itself. I tell a little bit about the story I just shared about how I got into it have some reflections on why our souls literally need silence. Cause that was the thing that mm. was surprising for me. It's like, I didn't realize that most of my life was just lived inside of my own head and just always thinking and what my soul really needed was um, this experience outside of my typical thought world. I needed uh, really just God. And like, I like to say, I found the silence, but really the silence found me. And then in that silence, I found a deeper uh, way to relate to God that enhanced all the things I'd done previously. So I do, um, the opening chapters are, some of them are very short little biblical vignettes, you might say, about how we can encounter God in silence and where some of that comes from scripture. But it's really just to get people started. And then I guess then the Bible scholar part of me comes out and I do a... <laughs> Kind of a deeper dive that's both biblical and theological in the second section where uh, I try to connect centering prayer to, I use Bernard de Clairvaux, who was a, a monastic from the medieval period. And then I do a lot with um, the great commandment because um, Clairvaux has a great essay on uh, basically four levels of love. And so I try to connect centering prayer and the practice itself to how to grow deeply, essentially in love for God, love for neighbor. And then the big thing I, that was a growth point for me was that part, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I see that as love for God, love for neighbor and love for yourself. And, uh, and not in a narcissistic way, but in the, the deepest way we can love ourselves for the sake of, of, of God, essentially, which is what Bernard de Clairvaux does. And so that's kind of the middle section. And I try to reflect on what, who is it the God, who, who is it that we sit in silence before? And so I do try to connect God. And, you know, and I come out of this from kind of the Methodist Wesleyan side of the theological world. So there's some of, uh, of that if, you, if you're familiar with the tradition. So it's, there's some different ways of thinking about God, where I see God as a God of holy love, essentially, a God that loves us and a God who's, uh, um, uh, who's holy and how that how that relates. Um, part three, I do the stuff that which every, anybody that does any kind of solitude practice, especially something like centering prayer, is you're immediately aware of how overwhelming thoughts are. And so yeah, exactly. <laughs> do a couple chapters with, 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 with that. And, uh, you know, and I, I think when you're on the podcast, we talk some about, uh, even some, some of those elements. And I do a little bit with the vagrius Ponticus, who I found his work super helpful in thinking about, um, the eight distracting or eight evil thoughts as he talks about those and I talk about inner purification. And then part four is once we learn how to deal with our thoughts, the, the hard part about centering prayer is the so-called um, troubling thoughts that arise, the things that we really struggle with. And I have this whole section on confronting the false self, which to me is um, it's kind of my favorite I like the beginning of the book and, and, but the real deep stuff to me was this confronting the false self section, uh, which 
that was where my growth really came in because I thought about you know, from psychology, uh, especially a, a lot of Jungian psychological thoughts. I'm uh, uh, thinking about that, and also um, just the classic spiritual formation ideas about false self. Thomas Merton, um, um, Mariko Madigan's book "Centering Prayer and Healing the Unconscious," Thomas Keating's work. All, all that stuff kind of comes in there, and it's my <clears throat> ways to how the insights I gained from all these deep writers uh, helped to essentially transform me. And I wanted to give a field guide to folks because that's the scary stuff. A lot of times we tell people do this stuff and it's going to change your life. And and even my book, the, you know, the publishers wanted to add that sitting quietly in God's presence can change your life. That was my original title was going to be centering prayer in the journey to love. But I do like their title, but it's it almost comes like my book's giving this audacious promise. But you know, as, <laughs> yeah. as you know from your own work, you know, I love your title, "The Wild Land Within." For your book, it's like, um, yeah, there's all this stuff on the inside, and it can be scary <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're not ready for it. And mm-hmm. for me, I didn't know the kind of stuff that was going to churn up by sitting in silence. But so um, that last that section to me is critical for folks to just um, kind of own your insides, own who you are. And I was just trying to uh, wrap the book up with the idea that, uh, and this comes out on all the contemplative writers too, that that um, that the fruits of 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 centering prayer is we live the the mission back into the world as as transformed people or even as as wounded healers. So I have a few reflections on. Again, moving back into the world, also on things like um, forgiveness, being free to truly love others out of an authentic and healthy place, and then essentially the you know the last chapter, I just talk about uh, one of the most powerful things, at least for me, about the healing that's taken place and even the spiritual growth is uh, I find myself so much less distracted that I can be really present uh, for people. And that's translated into me being a better teacher, uh, being a better conversation person and just being, you know, present. I tell a funny story about being in a meeting where everything kind of goes south and I just totally am chilled and and the Mm -hmm. the conflict resolves itself because I didn't instantly go into defensive mode or anything. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the book ends, but it was just to give, remind us in a sense, um, the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. And that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of my mentors always taught, uh, we need to uh, basically show up, pay attention, and recognize that God has way more invested in what's going on around us than even we do. So in centering prayers, help me to get into that space. Yeah. Some people use ego or like a, like a, not a, not the ego we need to sort of survive in this world, but the, the unhealthy ego interchangeably with the words false self too. So it's Mm -hmm. like, we, Mm -hmm. we all need a certain amount of ego to to have a personhood, (laughs) but, but the, the false ego or the damaged ego will be very concerned with reputation. What do people think of me? I hope I'm impressive. I hope I look smart. And that is so based in insecurity instead of God's unqualified acceptance of us, God's love for us and grace, right? So it's part of that healing process that the Centering Prayer and Contemplative Practices bring us into seemingly direct intimacy and presence with God that we can let the false self drop because it's been this really feeble armor to protect us from the yeah. world. Yeah. And maybe you could speak to kind of what was your process of dropping the false self or letting it wither? 
Yeah. And, and again, I wasn't even thinking these are the kind of things were happening, but it's like looking backwards, I, I can, I can process these pieces. Cause obviously in our, sometimes in our own minds, we, we can sometimes see complexity in ourselves, but then we don't give other people the permission to be as complicated as we are. So we can make people a thing. And I think that's where mm-hmm. a lot of the labels that we use today comes from. So yeah. I think for me, unpacking the false self has been, um, has been recognizing, and this will sound kind of uh, strange, that I'm not quite as special as maybe I thought I was, and that uh, <laughs> the common sorts of things that you run into in life are literally everybody else's struggles in, in some ways. Again, we're not going to try to say everybody's the same, but in, in a sense, the, the the false self just kind of, um, at least the way it manifested for me is I have to prove that I'm good enough uh, to get the love that I really needed that didn't I didn't get for some reason and when I was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother story. Some of that's in the book, but um, just wounds that I had. And so I had to become something other than a person loved by God to, to have significance. And, and those drivers for me let me to, I mean, basically get most of the um, roles that I've ever had in my life was just mm-hmm. from a lot of hard work and mm-hmm. trying to go above and beyond everything. And so the healing moments came when I'm sitting in silence and recognized, you know, like I talk about uh, going back to Evagrius's thoughts, uh, those eight distracting thoughts or the better known as the seven deadly sins. I remember sitting and just realizing how angry I was on my insides, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then realizing, wow, you know, God is here with me. I'm sitting with God and all I am is angry and I'm replaying tapes of things that I wish I would have said. And and then I just learned, it's like, you know, I got to let this stuff go. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the confronting who I was, was just recognizing that both the gifts I had and my deepest hurts, if they weren't fully surrendered to God, I was going to live out of this paradigm where it's basically me with clenched clenched fists um, mm-hmm. just going to fight my way through life. I mean, Richard Rohr has that great image of um, the loyal soldier that we used to have, and we just need to kind of let him, let that loyal soldier go. So, for, you know, mm-hmm. for me, it's been, you know, and this sounds funny, I, you know, Asbury Seminary where I teach where we come out of the holiness tradition. So we talk mm-hmm. a lot about Christian holiness. And one of the things that I, that I have to say, and I always have to be careful I say this, but it's like, I feel a lot less holy now than I used to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Better acquainted with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and in the fact that I think, you know, God has gotten so much bigger for me, um, mm-hmm. you know, the closer you kind of get to God, you know, you feel 100% loved, but you're under no illusions that, mm-hmm. um, um, <laughs> that exactly. uh, w- apart from God's grace, you're not completely whole. And so that's, uh, again, I could, I probably should stop there, but that's me <laughs> just kind of responding to your question. It's, uh, yeah. it's been more just, you know, sitting there, paying attention, letting God do the work. I would say not being afraid to let God churn up both the most beautiful things inside of myself, but also mm-hmm. the parts that I wish weren't there and just recognizing mm-hmm. that there's there's no judgment from God. It's just in, inviting me to let go of those things mm-hmm. so that I can literally be the, in my case, the man that you know God created me to be. What you're saying is very potent and, and really rings true for me too. When we do feel the love and acceptance, then we have the reserves and more courage to see ourselves as we really are, which it's quite a mixed bag and could be yeah, yeah. quite disturbing, but also we should be acquainted with reality as it is. 
I am noticing on page, I believe it's page 59, when you talk about Richard Rohr in his book, The Immortal Diamond, he summarizes the false self in four ways. And I like how you put this down because I think this helps us try to wrap our brains around what he's speaking of and what we can understand about ourselves. We don't have to hate our false selves. We have to just right. kind of come to the understanding of what we're dealing with as sort of complex mammals with an inner life is that our false self splits us from and contrasts with who we truly are as persons deeply loved by God. First, our false self masquerades as our real self at the cost of a repressed shadow. Yeah. Second, life becomes centered in our thinking minds. We can lose touch with our essence. This means neglecting our true self as an embodied soul, not taking seriously our bodies, emotions, feelings, and thoughts. It's just kind of this, just this thought life. And it can really run amok if you're an anxious person. You can really get these thought ruts, like we were talking about with Evagrius, these, these um, you know, repeated or even... Um, Obsessive thoughts can can go that direction too. And then third, the false self denies the presence of death and avoids it. That's really powerful. It's kind of having us stay in a fantasy world. Our denial of death may involve our overemphasis on the afterlife in our spirituality. Uh, I think we've seen that a little bit in Christianity. <laughs> Such a focus may result in the practice of religion as merely otherworldly rather than a moment-by-moment practice of the presence of God's love. And we may fixate on heaven rather than learning to manifest God's love in our lives in the present. It can lead in the opposite direction to the glorification of youthful vigor and beauty or the pursuit of eternal life through health or medicine. Last, the false self seeks to exist apart from others Neighbors may become the suspicious other or even viewed as adversaries. Of course, isolation leads to broken relationships with our neighbor as well as with God. Some of what you have here really shows how isolated we become with the false self. We don't then become loving to our neighbors, loving them as ourselves. It's this strange, the false self kind of spins on its own axis and allows us to be incredibly self-centered and, and out of touch with reality, out of touch with our own sinfulness and dependency on God, but also out of touch with how intertwined we are with our neighbors and our fellow humans who are struggling with the same sorts of things we are. I, it's, it's great to, uh, I think, unmask what we're speaking of with the false self, because I think we are really good at self-deception. <laughs> <laughs> We're just yeah, yes, so expert yeah. at self-deception. And that was a, a thing that was in our, my pastor's sermon about, you know, how the world is really good at self-deception. And I thought, the world? <laughs> I'm yeah, really good at yeah. it. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you Amen. very much. Yes. I'll take that first place prize. <laughs> this is really beautiful how God wants us to be free from our self-deception. When you speak about the fruits of the practices and you talk about the power of presence. I was curious as to in what ways has this manifest itself in your life, the power of presence, whether it's the power of God's presence or the power of your ability to have presence with others. How have you seen some of those things take root? 
Yeah, and 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 for, and for me, when I when I talk about this, it's just it's it is it is really interesting. Like I'll just put it in the classroom because I've been mm. I've been teaching now for. I basically started teaching at a seminary in 1994. And then, mm. so so basically every year since 94, I think there's only one year that was an exception. I was in grad school. I've, I've been teacher in a grad, in, in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And the biggest difference, because I've always been a, a good teacher. Like I even, I had one te- teacher of the year at Asbury back before any of the, the, the challenges that I had before I was doing centering prayer. So I've always had a lot of passion. Here's where the difference is that I can see it. Like, I used to be the professor that ran into the classroom at the last second, taught, taught my heart out. People really liked the <laughs> classes. But then as soon as the class was over, I'm back out the door doing something else. And I uh-huh. never really had time for students. And I don't mean that in a terrible way, because obviously if somebody had one that needed help or something, of course I was there and I had office hours. But what I've noticed is I put way more margins into my schedule even now so that I have time to be interrupted. And, you know, Bonhoeffer talks about the ministry of being interrupted, I think, in his book, Life Together. And, uh, and you know, and so the biggest change I could say is that I can hold a conversation now with a person without just immediately thinking what I want to say next and wishing they would um, <laughs> stop talking or whatever. Um, though I can still ramble with the best of them because I'm a because prof- I am a professor after all. But I've noticed that I can be super interested. Like you know, I do coaching. I've been doing coaching now for a number of years, and there's no way the old version of myself mm. would be able to do that. Where I literally just show up hold space, pay mm-hmm. super careful attention to what somebody's saying without in releasing my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. I know in my, my, you know, I've remarried in my, um, I can see it, how it manifested in my, you know, I've been, um, I've been remarried now for over eight, for over eight years now. And that's been a true blessing in the connection that I have with my wife. Um, I'm a better parent because again, I'm not just fixing everything. I'm listening, and so just this is for me. This has been huge. That in a sense, um, I'm just available now, and I don't consider being interrupted to be an interruption. I see it as an opportunity to really engage another human being um, with God's love, and and that's. Again, it's almost embarrassing to have to say what I just said because I've been a pastor and everything, but <laughs> I know that I can be available and that the most interesting things I do every day are the interactions I have with others versus just being somewhere where I can, you know, write or just do the sort of things that, a, you know, maybe a professor does typically. And that's part of the false self too, because you were probably yeah. trying to achieve and, yes. and be impressive and, you know, do the best you can or be a good boy or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. All those <laughs> things. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And I think that's, that's most of us. I, I think, well, I guess I just relate to you. I think a lot of us are busy trying to, you know, check the things off our list. We hope we accomplish, or we hope that we are trying to please maybe our parents from, you know, some point, I guess, or whatever it is. And then we're not actually showing up for our lives to ourselves, but also to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that'd be the other thing too, is like, um, you know, I've, I started a podcast where I can just interview people and not do my, and that's because I want to be super interested. And so that's been a shift. Mm-hmm. I guess I've become more curious and, uh, and yeah, and super interested in others versus mm-hmm. trying to figure everything out on my own. And that would be mm-hmm. like another fruit. And even in my classes, I still teach biblical studies, but the students now love it that I do all these. And I used to do devotion. So it's not like, I, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually 
leading people into not just devotions, but exercises that help them to grow deeper themselves. So like when I teach and we do intensives at Asbury, at least the the way that we teach in Orlando. And so, you know, I have students and uh, come, I sit and we do 20 minutes of centering prayer way in advance of the class even starting. And Mm -hmm. I've noticed the students love that. I teach them about prayer of examine. Um, I do optional spiritual formation coaching for my students and they mm-hmm. flock to it and write to me and they want to be a part of that. So those have been the mm-hmm. ways that I just show up fully invested, not just to do, make a transaction on learning, mm-hmm. but at a, I think at a deeper soul level, the students know that I'm not just trying to teach them stuff. I'm actually giving them tools that'll let them grow Mm-hmm. and thrive and flourish, not even, you know, just today, but, you know, 25 years from now or whatever. It's just that they continue to grow. That's been the the big shifts in my own ministry. Like I say, I tell students now, I would, I want you to go so deep into spiritual formation that you can actually use the interpretive skills I'm going to teach you in a way that's going to do long-term service. And I'd rather you get the spiritual formation than even the Bible things. Because if you get the spiritual mm-hmm. formation materials, it's kind of like, that old saying, you teach a person to, uh, or give a person a fish, you feed them for a day, yeah. teach a person a fish, you fed them for a lifetime. To me, the spiritual formation is that teaching people mm-hmm. how to actually fish and cultivate that environment. And if you continue to grow in the love of God and become more and more, you know, essentially a holy person in the sense that you're reflecting God's character, you know, I want to teach you the biblical interpretation techniques then because how how powerful and how rich can teaching and preaching and mm-hmm. again, other people go to seminary for different, we got th- therapists, I mean, how, how much deeper will your interaction with scripture be mm. if it's coming out of this fully formed space versus me just teaching, you know, techniques on how to get a message when you know, it, the most important thing, like one of my favorite quotations, this comes from a pastor from, I think, the 19th century. Um, it's, um, my people's greatest needs is my personal holiness. Um, you know, <laughs> they don't just need another sermon. They need to be able to see God working in the person that's guiding them mm-hmm. in, in, as a way to inspire. And so that's, um, again, this is a long, kind of a long answer, but that's that's kind of how I really see my ministry at the seminary. I want to send the whole, whole as people that are as whole as possible with the tools of how to engage God at the deepest level, so that they can then serve wherever God sends them. And in a sense, I like to say, go to the metaphorically the darkest places on earth and be able to be a flashlight or a source of light and hope without just mm-hmm. being, you know, consumed by the by the darkness. And we need those formational t- experiences to be able to allow us to show up and be God's people wherever we find ourselves. Mm. Have you ever read or um, working the angles with Gene Peterson, Eugene Peterson? This year, had his biographer on Win Collier. And oh, it's cool. a beautiful book, The Burning in My Bones, I believe it's called. And and it made me want to pick up other Peterson books. But working the angles, um, you know, you want to you are tempted to give it to every pastor you know because it's about the contemplative pastor essentially shepherding people in contemplative ways to make their lives not full of more knowledge or um, ascend to more mental belief, but to become apprentices of Jesus in those ways and and show up in their own lives. And and so it's it's really um, 
it's just beautiful and it's very very practical too it's not just kind of like going into a corner and you know <laughs> you know contemplating your own being or something like that it's extremely practical for, for being with other people what sort of people are we becoming and that's where this working the angles comes in so it's i think you would if you haven't read that you would really love that book no i like that i'm going to check that out cuz that actually does sound really um you know, like i used to joke that you could have just basically chopped my head off and put it on a computer and that still would have been me as a whole person. But, but, but this whole journey now is that I've basically reattached my head to my own body um, with all the feelings and all that stuff and learning, you know, learning how to live as a, you know, a, a whole person. And, you know, that's what I want for my students. Um, not everybody's like me is, is stuck inside of the head as I used to be, but a lot of people are. And we give sometimes the false idea that a pastor just is kind of the person that knows theology and church history and, and such, but, uh, but he or she really, what they're, what they really need to model is like you just said, being what's mm -hmm. it look like to be an apprentice of Jesus mm -hmm. and how can we not just be about good theology, but ultimately right living. And those things don't have to be at odds, but there needs to be integrity between like our front stage and our backstage of our lives, between our heads and our hearts and even our hands then, right? That's the ideal of what our heads and our hearts manifest in our hands and our feet and you know and all that kind of good uh, all that good stuff so yeah yeah and maybe we can pull back to the four r's which you mentioned yeah. in your book um uh, this is a really nice way to to kind of get into the mindset of what are we talking about when we're speaking of sort of relenting to god's presence or the spirit i love these four r's and this is the that core teaching that comes from like Keating and Cynthia Bourgeau, and it's just a great reminder of what centering prayer is. And you can do this even if you're not doing centering prayer. It's resist no thought, retain no thought, uh, react to no thought, return ever so gently to the sacred word, and uh, mm -hmm. you know. And that's just a reminder of what the centering prayer practice is. It's essentially I'm going to sit in silence with God. All of the stuff that's going on inside our head and those four R's are just to remind us that um, you, you're not going to stop yourself thinking. A lot of people think meditation is about erasing your brain. That's not, isn't it at all? It's to become aware. So you don't resist. Um, you don't retain. And that's a good reminder, especially when you get like a really cool thing. Cause sometimes you get really good ideas while you're sitting in silence or, you know, you want to write something down, but it's like, <laughs> no, you just, you don't, you just have to trust the Lord that if you're supposed to remember something, it's going to come back. The healing part is the react to no thought because mm. especially the painful thoughts that come up, like, you know, I joked about how angry I was and I mm -hmm. put it in the book and it's kind of embarrassing, but it's really true. It's like other time I was just, you know, found myself thinking of having sexual thoughts while I was sitting out in silence. And I literally thought something was wrong with me at that point. <laughs> that it was weird or something. Yeah. yeah. But, but the, yeah. And, you know, so my tendency would have been like, be like Adam and Eve hide behind a tree. Right. And, but that's what we tend to do when, when yeah. we have a troubling thought, we jam it back down. But that's, mm. that's a bad reaction. Instead, it's like, whatever comes up, you don't react. You just, the last one is return ever so gently. You just give the thoughts mm -hmm. to Jesus, even if it has to be over and over again with the sacred mm -hmm. word. Um, but that essentially is, it's just to teach us just to let go of whatever's mm -hmm. comes up in our thought stream. Mm -hmm. Don't freak out about it and just gently give it to God. And that is the entire centering <laughs> prayer practice. Yeah. And that puts us in these positions then 
and for little, you know, split seconds before new thoughts come in to just be fully open to the God who loves us. And so, yeah, I, I love the four R's and, you know, that's, if you just remember the four R's, that's probably the easiest way to yeah. uh, engage in these contemplative practices. Right. With reacting to no thought, I just wanted to underscore that is that if thoughts come up that are disturbing or that are sexual, yeah. that are painful, that's normal and that's part of the process. And we don't have to feel shame about it. God already yeah. knows everything, <laughs> all the stuff we know and we don't know about ourselves. But maybe you can a little bit uh, elucidate about returning ever so gently to the sacred word, because we didn't talk about yeah. a sacred word yet at all. And I don't want people to think, you, you cover this so well in the book, but this isn't New Age or Eastern mysticism or Buddhist or anything. This is a clearly Christian practice. Yeah, yeah. And people have said some things to me before about how this centering prayer stuff is false teaching and not really recognizing how long in, in church history, Christian history, these practices have been centered on God and have been so fruitful for God's people. Yeah. And that's, the, that is the critical piece. It's all about the intention. And so um, again, other religions do have meditation techniques, but the, the thing that makes Centering Prayer dis, uh, distinctively Christian is that we are literally sitting in the presence of a transcendent God. And so the sacred word, it's not a mantra. It's just, it's the, the like the cloud of unknowing talks about just picking a short word of a couple of syllables to use. That's the signal that basically it just means I'm here to sit silent with silently with you, O Lord, come and be with me and I'm here. And it just reminds us to break out of the thought pattern. So I make it real simple. I just suggest, um, People use Jesus as the sacred word, you know, and so when I catch myself in in, in a moment of um, of distraction, which again will be most of the time, I just gently think Jesus and left it up. But, but you know, but other people can use God or love or peace. But um, you know, I think for me, I, I I use the sacred word Jesus, and that's a way of me signaling to God of my intention. And so this whole thing is about intention. My intention is to surrender. My thoughts, no matter how beautiful they are, no matter how disturbing they might be, and, and give them to God so I can encounter God beyond my thoughts, feelings, images that come up in my mind. Mm. Yeah, and in, in a way, it's also a prayer as well. It's That's the yeah. prayer part, too, where you're saying Jesus, and it's, Jesus is an entire prayer as well. Yeah. I wind up also using the words thank you because yeah, I, I feel um, like that orients me to some of my truest self, but just gratitude and for the grace I have for each breath is such a gift. And I, when I am thankful, I'm content. And I, yeah, that's good. I really feel close to God's presence when I'm thankful and, and I should be thankful all the time. There's really no time when I shouldn't in some regard be thankful. So that's one of the ones I use that I find incredibly centering. If I'm super jacked up and upset, maybe I can't do it quite yet, but <laughs> but most of the time that is a really helpful yeah. grounding place to begin for me. And I think that you know centering prayer is is actually easy to describe. It's yeah, not easy to yeah. stay in, but the resist no thought, retain no thought, react to no thought and return ever so gently to the sacred word is great to remember as these guardrails, but it does take practice. And if you're not used to it, I just like to give people a heads up that it's not like 
you're going to begin a practice of centering prayer, your mind will be like, if it's anything like mine, it'll be like a, a circus in there <laughs> with a bunch of yeah, monkeys that's for sure. <laughs> juggling. <laughs> and so it, that's normal. If that is something you encounter, don't think you're doing it wrong. It's like a muscle that you wind up building up. No, that's, that's exact. That is so good. Cause that is the thing. It, Cause it's like, I found this to be so helpful, but it was so hard when I just started and it's still hard on some days, right? It's just like mm -hmm. some days it's just, all you're doing is the sacred word over and over again. And the, you know, the good news about that is every time you're using the sacred word, you're just reminding yourself to reconnect to God. So that's like the worst thing that's going to happen is if you're so distracted, you have to use the sacred word repeatedly. You're literally like going to the gym and doing a push up or a curl or something. You're just flexing muscles and you're building muscles that you probably didn't even know you had. And slowly God is healing you. And I love, actually, I love thank you as a, as a prayer word. I could see that being super powerful too. So th thank you for sharing that. And I'd never actually, I hadn't heard anybody say that before. So I really, I actually really like that. So thank you for that. Sure. I, I didn't hear it from anybody else. I just, I just came to it because I felt that the need, I felt yeah, like yeah. my heart should connect in that way. Do you have any final thoughts or words of encouragement as final guidance? Yeah. What I would just really encourage people to do is um, experiment with it. Like, I don't think spiritual formation is cookie cutter. And so I do think centering prayer can be helpful for almost everybody, but it has to be one of those practices that you can commit to and do. So I would just encourage folks, if you want to try it, don't, ex don't expect to be transformed in a week or even a, you know, even a couple of weeks, but just say, I'm going to do this for a season. And, you know, pick your time. If, if you feel like you can't go all the way to 20 minutes or even longer right away, even start with five or 10 and give yourself that space with no pressure because you're just going to, you're just sitting with God. And there's the only way to mess up centering prayer would be not to do it. And so mm -hmm. just be super patient, kind to yourself and see how it, it, it works. And, you know, like, you know, like my book, the, the title the publishers gave, you know, it literally might just change your life if you commit mm -hmm. to it. And you also might find it helpful to do it with another person too. Sometimes like for me, my initial times going full 20 minutes was when I was in a group and that gave me, whether it was peer pressure or whatever, I found that doing it with another person was helpful because I knew that they were probably having the same struggles I was having. So I was going to hold the space. And so if you're struggling, you may want to even look up and find maybe other people in your area that maybe you do centering prayer or invite a, a friend. Like my wife and I do it together every, every morning. Mm. Um, um, after we have coffee, we do 20 minutes together. And I have to say that's been really mm -hmm. powerful in our, our, our relationship and not getting, I know not everybody's married, but I mean, you can find a friend, a partner, um, you know, or even maybe a group at your church and group centering prayer is really powerful too. Well, Brian, thank you so much for putting all your thoughts and your growth down on paper so we can benefit from it and, and offering this, especially to your students to tell everybody where the best places to find you online or if they want to get in touch or read your book? Yeah, I think uh, you can, the best place to find the book online would be just go to Amazon, type in Centering Prayer and, and it, you should be able to see it or you can put Centering Prayer with my last name, Russell, and it'll show up. So Amazon's a great place. If you're listening and maybe you're a pastor and, you, and if, if you want to buy in bulk, Paraclete Press has really deep discounts and you can reach out and ask for Sister Estelle 
and there's really good discounts for churches if you want to order in bulk. Um, and then just to find me, I have a, a website that's fairly new. It started here in the fall of 2021. It's brianrussellphd.com, and I've literally pulled kind of everything together um, about me on that site now. And you can send an email to Brian at brianrussellphd.com, and, and I'd be happy to hear from anybody that has questions or is uh, interested in uh, you know learn a little bit more. Great. That's Russell with two S's and two L's. <laughs> yes, that's important. And Brian with an I, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a delight to talk to you. And I'm, I'm glad that we're connected online and we can encourage each other. Blessings on your book. And I think this has been really a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Uh, oh, you're welcome, Lisa. And this has been so wonderful to get to speak with you and everybody that's listening today. So thank you for the opportunity. I'm really grateful. Mm-hmm.